Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. I'm very happy to welcome you to the studio today, Peter Charlton, an author of his first book called Rainbows and Windmills, 21st Century Spirituality. You're very welcome to the programme, Peter. Thanks very much, Maeve. Nice now, to be here. You're a retired Church of Ireland clergyman and I read your book recently and I have to say it's a fascinating read, a look over your life and you've had many various experiences in your in your life as a clergyman, and you also have a lot of opinions about the church, <laughs> which are very fascinating. And you talk about person-centred spirituality, which to me seems to be something very progressive. Mm. So now you're retired these days and living happily in Thailand with your wife That's for right. the last number of years. And you had time during the pandemic to write your first book. That's right. Yeah, it was it was good to have the space because I, I think all my life or my working life, I've been working at it rather than reflecting on it. So this the pandemic, for all its problems, has given me space to reflect and to see, to put things together in a framework that I hadn't really thought out before. I started. Right, yeah. it's like weaving all the threads of your life together into a tapestry, it is, isn't it, right. when well, you bring it together like this. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your early life and how you came to be someone who worked in the church. Well, I had the, the misfortune, and I say this advisedly, to, to be brought up in a clergy home. My father was a Church of Ireland clergyman, and, and I was born in County Limerick, Palace Kenry, way back in the day. And uh, by the time I was, at, you know, in, in six, I think, I was, but first year at primary school, I was up in the north in County Tyrone, and uh, in a little village called Dromore, which is... A fairly nondescript place, really, you know, but it was a full of interesting people. And I, although I had to go to church uh, twice on a Sunday and to Sunday school as well, I think looking back on it, it was more the people in the village that made the impact on me that, that enabled me to grow spiritually. But I never wanted to become a clergyman. I mean, that was the last thing on my, uh, on my register, really. So, uh, I I had an, a particular movie. This comes up in my next book. <laughs> I don't want to jump the gun too much. But I wanted to join the Royal Navy and become a, an officer in the Royal Navy. And uh, I did apply and for a number of years worked towards that, you know. But I, I my eyesight prevented me from joining in the end and a great disappointment. So it was through the disappointment, really, that I found my way to something I was comfortable with which I thought at one stage might be social work, because that would be a lot. What a lot of my ministry would I would have seen was about really was social interaction, and recognizing what needed addressing in society. But you know, in a way, um, I wasn't suitable for. According to the academics, anyway, I wasn't suited for social work, social studies. So I sort of fell back into the church, but I was. By the time I actually got into the work of it, I was really comfortable because of the family background and the context in which I grew up. So it, it wasn't daunting for me, but I still had awful problems and I still have awful problems with a lot of what the church teaches, you know. Do you mean the Church of Ireland? I mean the Church of Ireland and all the Christian churches. Um, but some Christian churches, particularly sort of the right-wing American-type churches, they teach and preach this creationism that the world is only 6,000 years old, you know. I just think that's appalling that, that we would imagine telling our children something that's so contradictory to what's scientifically visible for us, you know, we can identify. Um, but 
a lot of the teaching that the Church of Ireland would have would be shared with all the Catholic churches and the Orthodox churches around the world. So um, things like the doctrine of original sin, for example. I mean, if you were setting up a faith community now, would would that be top of your shopping list to put in and say, you know, you're you're unworthy <coughs> unless you're you know, born bad. Yeah. Yeah. So <coughs> and and I I think it's quite an oppressive thing to do to have a to carry that doctrine. Um and I have always had a problem. And of course, the Church of Ireland has some things specifically that go back to the Reformation period. And it was important that the Church of Ireland or the Church of England and Ireland as it was defined its position against Catholicism uh, and also against extreme Protestantism. So it was both Catholic and Reformed, the Church of Ireland. And that's, you know, it's middle a middle path. But the things that they said 400 years ago or 500 years ago, we're still having to assent to in order to get a job in the Church of Ireland today. So I used to hold cross my fingers behind my back when I... <laughs> <laughs> and even sometimes, and there's one case in the book where the Archbishop of Dublin said, do you assent to these articles? And I said, I assent to 17 of them, you know, and there's 39. And there was a little bit of a banter going on at the front of the, the cathedral, Christchurch Cathedral, uh, while we sorted this out. But to be fair to the Archbishop, was, Alan Buchanan was his name. He said, oh, well, let's go ahead with this, you know. So he was he was going to be my... What, what guarantor for the future. Okay, okay. So you had a certain ambivalence from the beginning. Aye. I mean, not about the core stuff, because I think that the the person of Jesus and a lot of the teaching that he brought to life and lived out is has some currency for me in the present. But the rest of the stuff is very wearying, you know. And I, I, I really want... I've always wanted to have a faith that could be could resonate with the community around me rather than one that I had to indoctrinate into the community. And so I so I was always a bit of a misfit. And maybe maybe God got my vocation wrong or I got it wrong or something. But I have been very happy and I've been blessed enormously by the people in prison. I worked in prisons for 21 years people in hospital dying, people in hospices. I've just been gifted so much in my life. Uh, and my heart is full of gratitude and appreciation. So that can't be bad, but the institution does, doesn't square up with this somehow. And, and that's my issue. But, but ironically, you could only have done those things and been in, had those opportunities because the institution existed in that's the first right. place. That's right. Yes, and I'm a, I'm a complete hypocrite in the, in the sense that there are hypocrites inside the church and outside and I'm one of the ones inside it. But So I took the money uh, and I kept my fingers <laughs> crossed. <enough. laughs> I kept my fingers crossed behind my back. But I I don't think I cheated anybody, if you know, you know what I mean. Uh, but I think so the church afforded me the opportunity to exercise a ministry. And they certainly didn't make me a bishop, and I'm sure they're they're, they're relieved about that. <laughs> but uh, but that wouldn't have been one of my particular no. ambitions, you know. It wasn't uh, that wasn't that important for me. Although, if, suppose if somebody had come along and asked me, "Would you like to be a bishop? Here's here's your your next pass," I probably would have taken it, you know, or I'd have thought about it seriously at at, at any rate. But I do think that 
um, a lot of the people in the church that were at the studying at the same time as I were really imaginative and opportunistic in the sense that they could see opportunity to do things that were relevant. I mean, when I was a student in Derry, there were pe- thousands of people marching on the streets every weekend, you know, and then there was uh, a lot of repression in Derry as well. So uh, lots of things were going on in the world. We were living in a world that that was dynamic. The 60s? Yeah. And 70s? Yeah. Yeah, sure. 60s, early 70s. Upheaval. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was... How do you relate to that and how does that, how do you bring meaning and relevance? So I suppose one of the things that I would have had on my to-do list always was how do I make the church relevant to this world we're living in? Uh, And to that extent, I probably was faithful to the church. But in the detail of doctrine and and other stuff, I... Rules and regulations. I would have been they fell fairly lightly off the edge of my okay. shoulders you know okay so did you have a parish up north no no i i once and that this well, you've moved on to book 2 now oh sorry okay <laughs> no but, but i did uh my uh, joss my first wife uh, was anxious that we would she she became uncomfortable in the south she was from the north and she had this idea that we would go to north and so i i reluctantly said well yes because there are a lot of things about the northern community that I find additionally difficult. Um, so, but I won't go into the detail of that. But we'll say the Orange Order, for example. I've, I've never been comfortable with how that sits with my faith um, and other things as well. But, um, so I never, I never actually got a parish in the north. And uh, that was, I, I got my illness. The last time I was here with you, I was talking about how I recovered from my cancer. And Part of that was to move to England and become a full-time prison chaplain. So, so in a way, uh, the North, returning to the North, was never seriously on my agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you had been there during the Troubles. I had studied in Derry at McGee University College and I had, I had grown up there and I had, I suppose, and I had loved and lost a few times <laughs> and, and life you know the, it, it, it was normal sort of a life but I was always uncomfortable around the religious agenda and particularly and there's a, a little story in the book about the Sunday school that my mother sent me to with my older sister Rosemary and the man uh, Mr Strong who just said to me when we'd finished singing this chorus about being washed in the blood of the lamb and he just said well, Peter, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? And I just sort of went hot and then I burst into tears and I ran out of the room because I hadn't thought of the words I was singing until he said that. And I was just overwhelmed with, God, this is shocking, the idea of blood and all this. It's gruesome. Well, it it was for a a, a a seven-year-old boy, you know. What does it even mean? (laughs) Well... I could give you the theological stuff, but that wouldn't make any more sense of it. It it was horrific for me, that particular. And so a lot of that sort of religion that I would have been influenced by um, was was really tough for me. It was redeemed only by my Presbyterian grandfather and grandmother, who uh, they were Stuarts. That was my mother's maiden name. 
And that's, I've put that at the end of my name, Peter Tarleton Stewart, on the book because I owe them so much for the benign influence that they were spiritually, I feel now, uh, in a community where there was so much negativity and, and always a sense of shortcoming. You're not good enough. And that really is not the sort of spirituality that I want to mm-hmm. offer other people. <clears throat> well, in, in the North is, how in my lifetime anyway, has always been very polarised and things tend to extremes then, I think, mm-hmm. in and in both Catholic and Protestant areas, like more fundamentalism in, from a religious point of view maybe than you'd find in the South. Yeah, but but there are, I mean, there, there are many Catholics I know in the North who are middle of the road. Moderate. And, and, and moderate and, and the same with Church of Ireland people, Protestant people in the North would tend to be more centre than right or left. Okay. You know? um, but the, the thing about the North, it never had a, it never seemed to develop a, a proper trade union labour movement where Protestant workers and Catholic workers could see how much more they had in common with each other than they had with their faith communities. You know? Interesting point. Uh, yeah, interesting point. Uh, and, I, and I would have, I, would, I was gradually becoming more socialist as I grew older and I would still call myself a Christian socialist. You know? Okay, very good, very good. So I'm here talking to uh, Peter Tarleton who is a retired Church of Ireland clergyman. He's written his first book, which is called Rainbows and Windmills, 21st Century Spirituality. It's a fascinating read. I've read it myself on holidays recently. Very accessible, very readable. A story that starts in your early life and brings us through, you know, the many twists and turns of your life up to now. And the second book is on the way. So Rainbows and William, Rainbow, Rainbows and Windmills like Peter Tartan Stewart, is available in all bookshops at the moment. So now we'll go to our first piece of music, which, in my opinion, is also a spiritual song, Arcade Fire, My Body's a Cage. Welcome back to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. I'm here in studio today with Peter Tartan Stewart, who has published his first book, Rainbows and Windmills, 21st Century Spirituality, a fascinating journey through his life from early childhood up to the present. He's now retired and living in Thailand with his wife and took the opportunity of the downtime of the pandemic to write his first book and is working on the second. So, very inspiring for all of us and for everybody out there who feels they have a book in them. I think most of us do. Mm, I so, think so, great achievement published by Columba Press. Well done, Peter. So, now, 21st Century Spirituality your book talks often and references pe- person-centred spirituality. So just for the listeners, I might just say from my own background in counselling, the word person-centred is uh, very important in the counselling world in the sense that it came kind of after Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis. Freud developed an extraordinary and amazing structure of understanding the human psyche but he had clients lying on a couch and uh, it was he was quite separate and kind of impersonal really, which worked, I think, for lots of things. Mm-hmm. But then came along uh, Karen Rogers who said that focus should be more on the person and the relationship between the counsellor and the client. And he would have people sitting face to face with him. And the whole premise of uh, person-centred is that it's non-judgmental, that it's empathetic, that it's facilitating the person speaking and hearing their um, story and expressing their story. So 
for me as a counsellor, I work with both Freud and Rogers and m- many other approaches, but it's kind of called friendly Freud. Mm-hmm. So that it means the relationship is there in, in the friendship part and the theory is there from Freudian psychology as well, Freudian psychoanalysis, and it's very effective. So I guess spirituality and religion is something that we have grown up with as being very much somewhere outside ourselves. Like God is always down the road in the church mm-hmm. or up in heaven. And then we have hell as well, of course. And it's a structure that comes from outside and more or less tells us what the truth is and defines it for us. We don't question it. We just go along and obey and conform and do everything we're supposed to do. Mm. At least that's the kind of religion I grew up with. So what does it mean for you, Peter, to have a person-centred spirituality? Well, just to to relate to your um, counselling context there uh, as well, Maeve, I would have been in psychotherapy on a fortnightly basis for 21 years when I was a prison chaplain. And I, I did a deal with any governor I worked with that uh, they, uh, I would do that in my work time, but I would pay for it myself. So I did that. And so I had that experience of getting space around me in which to understand what was going on in my work, primarily because I carry my own rubbish around with me and I could see that and in a lot of situations that that, became, that came between me and the, the client who was a, mostly a prisoner, but sometimes prison staff as well. And so I wanted to get my own rubbish into some sort of framework that allowed me to be completely open and to receive, have enough space in in my heart to receive what people wanted to dump onto me without feeling that it was oppressing me. So I don't know if that, does that make sense? Absolutely, because as a counsellor, I I go for supervision. We all do go for supervision on a regular basis as well so that we deal with our own process and we're not projecting stuff onto our clients. So so I would see that this has helped me to make sense of my life in a way that uh, otherwise I could feel bitterness towards Mr. Mr. Strong who who was uh, talked about the blood of the lamb and (laughs) and frightened the life out of me. Uh, Or I could... Uh, you know, or I could feel grumpy at my father because he wasn't a good enough father, uh, but actually he was a good enough father. And I hope uh, for all my faults, I have been and am a good enough father, but I'm not the best father in the world, but I'm the best father my children have. So I, we could sort of, tra- but so what I have thankfully been able to do is to offload a lot of grievance that I would have grown up with in my life because of the therapy that I allowed that I endured or or experienced during Mm -hmm. those years. Mm -hmm. And so I then, it wasn't until I got writing this book that it dawned on me that that this is what the process that I'm actually writing this from my personal history, but I cannot write it for you in your history. You've got to do that for yourself. And my understanding of person-centered counselling is that you don't impose an interpretation for people on what was happening to them. Well, in the religious institution, we impose an interpretation. So when you're dying, you're supposed to offload all your sins so that you go to heaven pure-hearted, you know? Uh, you know, some sort of model, uh, a notional thing. Well, I'm not sure that meets my spiritual needs. I, I'm, I'll am i be 76 in a couple of months' time, and I'm going to die one of these years, you know? And, and 
I'll take what take it when it comes. But I'd rather have a surprise than have it all mapped out for me by an institution that really it has carries with it a baggage of over two thousand years and doesn't really uh, regard me as just as an important a person in this faith community as the people in the early church, you know. So uh, we've, we've discounted generations of people so that they could be indoctrinated in the practice and decision-making of people way back. And that doesn't seem to me to be very therapeutic. It doesn't say your story is important. It needs to be heard. I worked with young offenders who had committed awful acts and the more I listened to them, the more I understood that they had been treated dreadfully in children's homes and, and been fostered out into families that were most ill-equipped to meet their needs. So it's not just a question of goodness and badness the way the church has taught it. It's about how do these things belong together in a person's life? How can I be integrated as a person? How can I love myself for all the bad things that I've done? Because I'm not pretending that I'm any angel, you know. And and I know that I've got to that point where I can accept that I have done awful things. But I would have been in denial for a long time about a lot of those things. I would have wanted to justify the breakup of my first marriage, for example, uh, and blame that onto my first wife, who, God rest her, she, she passed away in 2012, I can't I can't pretend that I wasn't a serious player in that marriage and in the marriage breakdown. So I, I can't uh, deny any of that. And so I'd rather find a way to bring it all together so I can be uh, a real live human being. There's nothing more noble for me than being human. And there's nothing more noble for Jesus of Nazareth than that he was human. If we put him on a pedestal up there that that is unattainable, then we we don't we we beat our, we're beating ourselves into the ground. We're we're never going to feel delighted in the in the whole wholesome holistic sense. You know, we're always going to feel, well, you know, I should be better. Uh, oh, I might have done that well, but I could, and and so we're always we're always there's a sense of failure, and I think the church has thrived over centuries on on that sense of failure that so many people have felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always remember um, reading about um, when the first Buddhists started to come to uh, Brit- uh, Europe after the Chinese invasion of Tibet. I think it was 1949 and they started mm-hmm. teaching Buddhism in Europe and uh, obviously it's very interactive, you know, the teaching of the Dharma and so people were asking questions and uh, the Buddhists from Tibet had never come across the concept of self-hatred. Mm. It was something that didn't exist in Tibetan culture at all. Mm. And everybody in Europe had it. Everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like the whole concept of sin. Yes. You know, and that we're a sinner. And no matter what you do, you're a sinner. Like, there's no way of not being a sinner, like, you know. Mm. And we're kind of, and that's where I think the whole idea of failure and inadequacy that that's kind of inculcated into us by the churches mm-hmm. comes from. Do you think? Well, I think so. And I think, I mean, God be good to St. Augustine, wherever he is. But the doctrine of original sin has been a serious oppression on generations of Christians. And it really needs to be put in its historical context and that we ought to 
find a way of having a conversation in the present about what our humanity really means, you know? Is it something to be ashamed of? Did, did, did I, I mean, I don't want to get into too much detail, but the Jews have had the story of the Garden of Eden for centuries before the Christians arrived. And they do not regard the sin in the Garden of Eden as disobedience of God's command. The sin is to cloak their humanity with a fig leaf so that their genitalia were somehow uh, hidden from God. And in a way, that to me is a, is a healthier picture that we would somehow think that we could separate ourselves from God by hiding bits of ourselves. That seems to me to be much more holistic and wholesome than the idea that that well, particularly, of course, the Christian Church blamed the woman. Eve was the key player in this. We know this. We church of femme. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. know this. Yeah, and, and yeah, so yeah. so this, but this whole idea that of of somehow uh, that there's somebody to blame for this, you know, grow up spiritually, take responsibility. Karma is a lovely concept that, that the, the Buddhists have shared with us. And take responsibility when things go wrong. Hold, hold my hands up and, and just work at it, you know, and, and don't, we don't have to hide. We don't have to. And I, I say that as somebody who has cloaked so much of myself over the, the decades mm-hmm. uh, that I suppose I should be embarrassed and ashamed of it. But I'm, I'm not because I'm consciously working on it. And I think it's an important thing to, op- to be more and more open. But, uh, and I think my marriages failed because I wasn't really honest and open about issues that, that we faced Okay. Uh, in the past. And just tell me what's your understanding of the word karma? Karma is that uh, something has a consequence. So if I act, there will be a consequence. If I don't act, there will be a consequence. So I have, I have to take responsibility for action or inaction and embrace it somehow as a, a, and, and whatever the consequences may be, not to be blaming somebody else, but to rather rise up with it and go where it leads me. So, uh, so I don't have to look back on my life and and uh, try to rewrite the history of it so that I come out like the good guy, but rather that we're all in this together. Good, good people and bad people belong together. You know, well, this is, but actually, the goodness and the badness belongs in each of us. So it's not about drawing a line up the middle of the world and saying that side are going to heaven and that side are going to hell. I mean. That just doesn't work for me anymore. Never really worked for me. No, no, it makes no sense whatsoever mm. to me either. So it's about coming to accept ourselves and that we all make mistakes going through life. That's absolutely inevitable. Mm. And uh, we have to be able to... Um, I think it uh, brings us to more compassion for others, I think, as we get, go through life when uh, we realise just how difficult it is, you yeah. know. And uh, often we're going into every day is a new day and we're going in with no guidebook and uh, we all make mistakes. It's the nature of the journey. And some of the poets and songwriters of the 20th century and and maybe in other centuries as well were were writing about the real life and the real spiritual issues of the day and the churches were bypassing them, found them uncomfortably challenging. Well, you know, which planet are we on and which which century are we living in? You know, now I know I'm talking about 20th century music. Uh, I'm not so up, au fait with 21st century music, but I'm just saying that we, we, we have always found it difficult to be contemporary. 
and to be real. And if, if spirituality is not, doesn't have that authenticity about it, if it doesn't have a ring of truth about it, then it, you might as well not bother with it. Now, this isn't to say that religion has nothing to offer here. I'm just saying that if it's going to have find its role in the present, then it's got to find a contemporary way of expressing itself and relating to people. Because what it's still saying is, you come into our embrace, we will teach you the language that we have inherited so that you can understand the concepts that we have burdened ourselves with for 2,000 years. Okay. So what do you think they should do differently? Do you have a vision of what a reformed well, church might look like? Well, this is this is where it's, this is where you tr- where it becomes dangerous because I think uh, people when people get into the realms of spirituality they think that that they should become masters of spirituality. But that's there's one of the chapters in that book about if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Don't don't entertain him. You know, because if you find somebody who can tell you how to how to be a spiritual person then you, that's a danger point. But in respect to the church, all the church has to do is to, to be humble, to accept that it has carried unsuitable stuff around for decades and centuries and just sit down alongside people and and find the truth of in the present, you know. Now, one of my sort of concrete institutional things is that cathedrals are well-placed around the country to be centres, drop-in centres for people who are travelling spiritually and places where homeless people can find a bed for the night. And these massive buildings, you know. Absolutely. And we, and we have them decorated and, and the state has spent millions of euros in keeping them in pristine condition. And what are they for? I mean, they're not... They talk about the glory of God, but to me, the glory of God would be people being able to lay down their head for the night and getting a meal and do you know what I mean? It's it's it's, it's it, it it just somehow it, it just doesn't relate. So <clears throat> they've got to reimagine their role in their communities. That's that's really what I'm saying. I know. And those beautiful churches and cathedrals were built with public donations when there wasn't a penny in the country. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they should belong to the people. Well they do. They do. But they do theoretically. <laughs> It's like NAMA, theoretically. We own all these properties, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm here talking to uh, Peter Tarleton Stewart, whose book Rainbows and Windmills, 21st Century Spirituality, is in bookshops at the moment. I'd highly recommend it. It's a great read, looking back over his life and how he has developed <coughs> spiritually over the last long number of years and many more to come, hopefully, and a second book on the way. So, published by Columba here in Dublin. So now we'll go to our second piece of music, very appropriately, Elvis, Love Me Tender. Welcome back to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halp, and I'm here in studio with Peter Tarleton Stewart, whose book Rainbows and Windmills, 21st Century Spirituality, is in all bookshops at the moment. Peter is a retired Church of Ireland clergyman currently living in Thailand and uh, is home for the launch of his book at the moment, promotion, which is fantastic. So one of the... One of the experiences you've had over the years, Peter, is to work with prisoners. Yes, yes. Uh, so that must have been a fairly uh, daunting experience. Uh, challenging is perhaps, perhaps a better word than daunting, if there's any difference between the two of them. But it, it was it was a real gift to me. I, I really felt I grew spiritually in that context. And there were a lot of my 
erstwhile friends who thought I should have been locked up years before that. But there I was and I did spend 21 years and I had never, there was never a day when I didn't want to go into work. Now, it, that didn't mean that it was delightful every day to walk in, to be in work. Uh, but one of the, I, I, my first four years were with young offenders in just outside Wigan in Lancashire. And I was really shocked at some of the things that those young people had done, some of the offences they'd committed. Violence. Vi- well, in vi- extreme violence. And also how they would have assumed that other people didn't count. This was there because they had never counted. And it was that bit about they had never counted that really put it to me to listen to their story. And so not only had I been originally shocked by them telling me about what they had done, because they all loved to talk about it, you know, when they were in jail. To talk about what they'd done. Yeah, because it was almost like a badge. Uh, you a badge know, of honour. Honour alongside other offenders. But when they got past that and started saying, talking about their own stories, it was appalling to hear about their childhood and how, uh, for example, to use the term, our father who art in heaven, uh, and to be teaching them the Lord's Prayer, for example, which you, which most uh, families here would take as, a, as a, a given, certainly up to that time. Uh, these people had, these young men had no experience of a father except a very, a very, Alien sort, maybe a foster parent or, uh, but mostly they had, they just didn't have, or any father that they had known was someone who had had treated them abominably. And so here, listening to their stories was a gift for me. And and that, of course, I was working on my own stuff about my own father with my psychotherapist uh, outside of the work context. So a lot of this a lot of this made a lot more sense to me. So when we had worship, for example, there was no point in being absolutely strict with the liturgical format uh, because why would you be training them in that when they'd be gone in 12 months and they wouldn't be inside a church again? But how can you help them to express their story in a way that gives them a better understanding of who they really are? And that then, there were some of my clergy colleagues in, in that Wigan area who would have said that that's really doesn't sound quite appropriate, you know. And I would have said, yes, I hear what you're saying, you know. But it seems to work because these people come to church and they want to read, they want to, they want to, be, they want to be heard, they want to sing, they, you know, they, and they want to find out. So they then ask some questions about faith. And... In the, in the chapel on a Sunday morning, uh, people would interrupt me in the middle of a reading or another inmate who might be doing a reading and they'd ask a question about it. Well, staff who were present, their attitude would have been initially, oh, I better shut that guy up for asking a question. But actually the whole thing came alive because people started asking questions. And, and I would be interrupted regularly uh, for example, I'll give you one example. One Sunday morning uh, with this particular group of people, I said, we're going to confess our sins now. And there was this guy stood up at the back, you know, very solid. He would have been about 19. He says, I'm confessing nothing to, uh, to nobody about anything, he says, you know. And I said, well, what's, what, where are you coming from? So confession means to the police in 
their language and their experience, you know. That's the only thing it means. That's right. It doesn't have any currency in their in their vocabulary at all. It doesn't mean it. So we had a long conversation about this. Everything else stopped while we had this conversation. And the words that they chose were come clean. Okay. Which made sense to them and actually makes a lot more sense to me than the word than explaining the word confession. So that I still was using that in church in in any liturgy I had for years afterwards, even outside the prison community. So in a way, uh, if I had been unwilling to listen and hear what people were saying there, I probably would have gone completely over their heads or bypassed them. I might have been a wonderful prison chaplain, but I wouldn't have... uh, Reached them. No, and, and I wouldn't have been reached myself. Because that, that is at the heart of it, really. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's the interaction between... Of course, of course, the, the, the dialectic. Di- and the dynamic of it. Yes, and the dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's And, so, and the interaction. And and that's a completely and totally different model of service than anybody would have been used to, I presume. Well, yeah, and, and there's some, I wasn't used to it either. <laughs> but... It, it it would have been for looking back on it, it the whole thing would have been meaningless really utterly uh, if I if I hadn't allowed myself to be exposed in some way yes to you were vulnerable in that situation that's right, that's right and I would say that there's no meaningful spirituality without an accompanying vulnerability ah oh, interesting okay you know that that if you're not um, if you're not allowing yourself to even if it's only that you recognise it yourself. Even you don't have to display it to others if you don't feel comfortable about it, but that at least that you recognise how vulnerable you are. And I maybe for me, I at least had my cancer diagnosis to to go back to as a way of recognising. Well, I'm I'm I could die any day, you know, uh, and and that's uh, so. But but prison really brought that home to me in a way that working in a parish wouldn't have done. I think if I just stayed, stayed mm-hmm. in a parish mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. But, but who knows? I mean, I'd say that opportunities are available in any setting if mm-hmm. you're willing to be open to mm-hmm. them. Well, you know, one of the most watched talks on TED.com is called The Power of Vulnerability by Brené Brown. And uh, I think it's a new kind of paradigm that's coming in, like because the rugged individualism was really what we kind of grew up with in a way. You know, it's all about being strong and hiding your weaknesses and now there's much more of a recognition that our humanity and our vulnerabilities are the same thing and it's only through being conscious of our own vulnerabilities that we can have compassion and empathy for others Mm -hmm. you know and of course we're vulnerable all the time physically we're vulnerable anything could happen to us Mm -hmm. but emotionally like we can be hurt betrayed disillusioned disappointed rejected you know we all have these we all live with this all the time. And I'd say that that is all the raw material that from which we can weave our own pattern mm-hmm. of spirituality, mm-hmm. which is very individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, there's one, two questions that I have t- uh, quite early in that book is uh, don't ask, is, am I good enough for my religion? But is my religion good enough for me? Mm-hmm. And, and, and we sort of, change when you use paradigm shift that that in a way we've got to have a religion that meets our needs Mm -hmm. we can't Mm -hmm. just go along with a religion that expects us to meet its needs Mm. 
And did you find any other p- colleagues who felt the same as you, Peter, when you were working? Yes, I, it was actually at the studying level. Uh, there's a, a priest who's a psychotherapist in, in the centre of Dublin at the Pro Cathedral, Father Brendan Staunton, a Jesuit, that I would have met when I was a student. And we we at, were at different meetings. There was something real about a lot of the interseminary activity in Dublin in those early 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, was really quite dynamic. It was just post-Vatican II. Quite a lot of the uh, Maynooth chaps that I knew had girlfriends because they knew that they would be allowed to be married as a result of Vatican II. Of course, wow. that never happened, and they okay. le- they left. They they didn't. Okay. Most of them that I know didn't proceed to ordination because okay. the it lost its what hold or or promise for them. Yeah, yeah, for their vocation. Of course, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and so, but there's a there's something about where other clergy in Church of Ireland with very different backgrounds to me. They'd be more evangelical or more high church or whatever, uh, and somehow there was something going on at that time and I think it was because the world was such so distressed in so many ways and Brian Smeaton went off up to Belfast he was a Dubliner really well Wicklow I suppose he is where he was originally from but he got involved with the the Protestant paramilitaries in Belfast and trying to help them to explore how to uh, what was it they wanted to say rather than just rattle off the old slogans, you know, and and he was involved with a, a, a community of people who were trying to framework the expression of those Protestant working class areas in Belfast. And Hayden Foster, who became a psychotherapist as well as an Anglican priest, who sadly passed away just uh, over a couple of years ago. And I'm talking, and there were others, Trevor Sullivan, who was Form, he was working with um, the, the Tavistock Institute in England to set up the, the sort of peace talks before anyone had started imagining that in Ireland in the 70s we were going to need a peace forum or a peace framework. Uh, so there were some very imaginative people. I I was chasing after them, really. Uh, they were role models in a way, I in guess. In lots of ways, yeah. Mm. And, and, and mm-hmm. so there, were, there, there was a dynamism around which seemed to dissipate once we once we lost touch with each other. But each of us in our own field seemed to develop uh, capacity to go, go deeper, you know. But it's very difficult to bring about institutional change. It is, it is. And I, I, that's why, in a way, I don't... Well, I, one of my objectives in getting ordained would have been to change the church. Uh, that gave me a, a serious life-threatening illness, I think, that process... So now I would say, let's change ourselves. Uh, let's, you know, be the change rather than worry about the institution. The best thing the church could do is to follow the example of Jesus and die so that it can allow itself to be renewed in some way. That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah, allow itself to be renewed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because often in those situations, the best people leave, don't they? That's right. And and how many people have, have felt that the church wasn't meeting their needs? Sure. sure. I, I never actually left it because I never accepted it wholeheartedly in, in all its glory, if you like. Uh, but then I was picking and choosing what suited me. So I, I have to admit back again to my 
uh, my sense of um, hypocrisy, you know, that that I could I took and left. I used to think that um, you, you know at the creed on a Sunday morning. Uh, I believe in the Church of Ireland that the prayer book changed that in 2004 to "We believe," and I think that's a wonderful way to say a creed because okay. every Sunday morning at that time, I don't believe everything that I'm saying. But if if we say it as a community, we believe. <clears throat> well, then I can I can be light with some of it sometimes, right. you know. Right, right. Uh, and it is, and it's maybe that dimension, that that community dimension that the churches have to offer. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. In, and it's what forward, it, you know? it's what draws people into smaller places like yeah. the, I had the Unitarian Church in here one time. You know, oh, yeah. people like that. You know, smaller and very personal and. They all know each other, and you know, quite very non-judgmental. Yeah, and and the church has the Catholic and the Protestant church have these, you know, centres all around the country that yeah. um, you know that they have the infrastructure there to do that. Yes. So, Peter, we're just at the end of the hour now. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you. Really appreciate that. Um, and we, I hope all goes well with your second book, uh, Peter's first book. Rainbows and Windmills, 21st Century Spirituality, which is a very progressive, in my opinion, take on the potential of spirituality in our lives, is in all bookshops at the moment. And uh, we'll hopefully have you back next year when the next one comes out, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. God willing. God willing. Inshallah. Okay. So now we'll go to our last piece of music, Cranberry's Linger. 